two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a new podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to the sixth episode of The Flip Side, the podcast series from Barclays Research. My name is Jeff Melly. I'm the global head of research at Barclays, and I'm joined today by Michael Gapin, our chief U.S. economist. Thanks for joining me, Mike. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So we're approaching the first anniversary of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, which is otherwise known as the Trump Tax Cut. So this is a good time to talk about how successful or not it's been. So in today's episode, we're going to debate whether the U.S. tax reform has been successful, primarily focused on the corporate tax cuts. I will be arguing that the corporate tax cuts did in fact have a positive effect on the U.S. economy. Uh, Mike's going to take the other side and speak to the other factors that he believes are in play that are boosting investment spending and other aspects that proponents of the tax cut were, were expecting. Now, to remind our listeners, the tax cut had two main components, one for individuals and one addressing the corporate rate. That's right. So the, the individual piece, or the piece that affected households, we think was first and foremost a tax cut. It, it had reduction in marginal tax rates across the board. There was a standard deduction and child tax credit that were doubled. The threshold for triggering the estate tax was also raised. And to help offset these costs, uh, the individual mandate and the Affordable Care Act was eliminated, and the deduction for state and local taxes was limited to $10,000. Mortgage interest deduction was also limited on, to mortgages valued up to three-quarters of a million dollars. These are the so-called pay-for elements in a lot of what a lot of commentators call tax reform, since they help lower the rate but also broaden the base through reduced deductions. But in a pure sense, tax reform would really be revenue neutral, whereas the offsets in this bill didn't fully offset the lost revenue from the rate reduction. So the individual side of this tax cut added to the deficit, and we treat it more of as a tax cut than actual tax reform. And we could probably spend hours discussing the potential economic effects of that part of the bill. In fact, we've touched on it on a few previous episodes, notably episode two, where we talked about why wage growth has been disappointing in this expansion. And then again in episode four, where you and I debated the implications of a flatter yield curve. But I actually want to focus on the corporate tax cut. That gets less attention in the popular press but I think it also has some pretty meaningful economic effects. Now, the corporate tax rate was cut sharply from 35% to 21%. Um, and there are a couple of limited offsets, mostly designed around stopping companies from abusing deductions. So these included some limits on the deductibility of interest payments, but they really only apply to a very small number of highly leveraged companies. Um, and some limits on the ability for companies to shift income into lower tax jurisdictions. But realistically, it added up to a pretty big windfall for corporate America. That's right, both because of the size of the tax cut that you mentioned in terms of the rate reduction, but also because that tax rate reduction is permanent. So to qualify and meet certain budgeting rules, the individual tax cuts sunset after year 10 and 2027, but the corporate tax cut does not. The reduction in the rate is permanent. Given the difficulty in making any changes to, to the tax code, it is reasonable to assume that this is the new status quo that it is here to say. Uh, and it's had an effect. Government receipts from corporate taxes show that in fiscal year 2018, 
the, the federal government took in about $100 billion less from the corporate sector than it did the year before. That certainly adds up to a lot over a 10-year budget scoring horizon. Okay, so let's turn to whether or not this tax cut uh, for corporates has been good for the U.S. economy. And we'll start with investment and whether or not the tax cut has actually increased investment because that's probably the area that the proponents of the bill emphasized the most when they were, when they were trying to get this passed. The U.S. tax, cut, tax rate of 35% before this bill was at the very high end of corporate tax rates in the developed world. And that's a fact that was recognized, really, by both sides of the aisle. In fact, President Obama had proposed cutting the corporate tax rate in the U.S. to 28%. So not quite as low as this bill went, but even he recognized that, uh, that the corporate tax rate at 35% was standing out compared to our, our you know, international peers. There was a lot of rhetoric around cutting the corporate tax rate about making the U.S. the best place in the world to do business premised on the assumption that too high of a rate was acting as an impediment to corporations investing here in the U.S. And in fact, investment in the U.S. has been low since about 2000. We've seen a a sort of a structural decline in investment in the U.S. And there was some hope that this tax cut would get companies investing again. And actually, if you look at the data, the early returns do show some sort of a bounce in investment. So for example, Equipment investing in the U.S. had been averaging about 5% a year, and uh, that has increased to about 8% a year in 2017 and 2018. Similarly, investments in intellectual property also averaging about 5%, now averaging almost uh, 7% a year. So there's at least some evidence that investment has responded um, to, to the lower rate. So those are all valid points, and, and, I, and I take on board what you're saying. But our strong view at the time, and I still hold the same view now, is that the change in the corporate tax rate and other adjustments to the code are unlikely to generate a large and permanent response in the way businesses invest. One reason is that the headline corporate tax rate really, in my view and in the view of of economic theory, is not the best place to start when considering whether or not the tax code encourages investment. We have all sorts of bells and whistles in the tax code, depreciation allowances, the investment tax credit. These help determine the effective tax rate, and businesses really react to the effective tax rate, not the statutory rate. There's a lot of evidence that the effective tax rate was well below the statutory rate. And there are other factors to consider, like the pace of growth and economic activity, since how fast we're growing will help determine how quickly the capital stock wears out. And also just the overall level of interest rates. Those are still at or near historical lows. And I'm not sure that, that it's the tax rate that was the impeditive uh, to investment. There are other factors here at play. And finally, previous reforms to the code, which date all the way back to the 1980s, have already made a lot of progress in reducing distortions to the tax code, in my opinion. And so we need to factor all of these in when we estimate the tax-adjusted cost of capital. When we do, we find the code about neutral regarding investment. It doesn't really overly support investment. It doesn't really restrain investment. So what I think you're seeing is a temporary boost in business investment. We don't see a permanent explosion in investment on the horizon. All right, so let me give some comments on the sort of underlying economic theory. And without really getting into equations, just conceptually, 
the conclusion that the tax code is close to neutral with regards to investment does depend on some reasonably unrealistic assumptions. For example, uh, assuming perfect competition in the U.S. economy and assuming riskless as opposed to risky and uncertain outcomes from investment. When you relax those assumptions, then the conclusions about how accommodating the code is to investment uh, become somewhat less stark. I think that's right. And I would just argue that I think that's a question of magnitude. So if we're in a world where corporates have structurally higher margins and therefore increased rates of return to investment, maybe yes, you'll get a little bit more. But I think it's a uh, it's a question of magnitude, and I'm skeptical that that in and of itself would be the game changer. I guess another uh, uh, area to consider when thinking about the recent investment data is that you know there's a lot going on in the world in the world right now. We have a government shutdown that we're in the midst of as we record this. We have uh, uh, very uncertain outcomes in the UK regarding Brexit. We have uh, trade negotiations with China that. Uh, are highly uncertain and that we'd expect to be reaching some sort of conclusion in the first quarter. And there's a bit of a counterfactual, which is to say, just how high would investment have been if we weren't entering a period of real economic uncertainty? And so we've seen the fact that we're seeing any sort of a boost um, may be very encouraging, given that uncertainty is probably one of the biggest factors that would weigh against investment. So that's true. So the counterfactual in this is is very difficult to to pin down, and, and the fact that we're we're discussing increased protectionism and changes to immigration laws, anything that raises uncertainty is likely to cause businesses to delay spending and hiring plans. So, isolating the effect of the reduction in the corporate tax rate is difficult. It it's kind of like the the counterfactual of well, what would have happened to the U.S. economy if the Fed didn't expand its balance sheet? Right, we don't have that in hand. Without that, it's difficult to understand what what the true impact uh, has been. So I think you're right on that point. So that said, while increased uncertainty may reduce the amount of investment that that we've seen, I'd still argue that this is one of a a transitory story versus a a permanent story. I actually do think there was an opportunity to have a greater impact on investment right out of the gate. This is a bit technical, but the tax plan included a reduction in the corporate tax rate. It also included an increase in the depreciation allowance. So there was an acceleration in the ability of firms to deduct depreciation uh, from their tax bill. But by lowering the marginal tax rate, you actually reduce the benefit of increased depreciation allowances. So these two things work at cross purposes. We argued at the time that if the goal is really to incentivize investment over balance sheet optimization, then the reduction in the marginal tax rate actually should have been delayed. If you left the marginal tax rate at 35% for a few years, but accelerated depreciation, it really would have incentivized firms to support and engage in multi-year capital spending plans. It would have reduced the likelihood of rushed or inefficient investment decisions, and it would have eliminated some of the potential for cliff effects in investment spendings. In some respects, the bill as passed, in our view, just really gave a windfall to old investment, and it gave a higher deduction for investment that firms were already planning to do in the short run. You can't go back in time and invest more. Decisions from the past five years can't be undone. That windfall may be good for equity holders, but in our view, it doesn't really provide any benefit to the broader economy. So I think the bill could have been structured better in order to incentivize longer-term investment, and it would have had a larger impact on the economy. 
Right, I want to turn now to some of the second order effects of this corporate tax bill. And I'm going to focus on three second order effects. One is inversions, which is when U.S. companies re-domicile their headquarters overseas. A second is cash trapped overseas and whether or not it gets repatriated back to the U.S. And a third is the long-term leverage decisions that corporates make regarding their balance sheets. And I think the corporate tax bill had effects on, on all of those. And let me start with inversions. So an inversion, like I said, is when a U.S. company merges or purchases uh, an overseas competitor and then redomiciles its headquarters uh, uh, outside of the U.S. And the reason why companies might do this is that the U.S., almost alone amongst the developed world, taxes not just U.S. profits, but profits that U.S. companies make overseas. But if you are an overseas company, you only pay taxes on the profits you make in the U.S. So, for example, a U.S. pharmaceuticals, pharmaceuticals company who buys a European competitor, they used to pay taxes on their U.S. and their European profits. Once they re-domicile their headquarters overseas, they only pay taxes in the U.S. on their uh, U.S. profits, not on what they make overseas. And we saw a wave of inversions uh, occurring in the U.S. in the run-up to this tax bill. And we've seen virtually no inversions subsequent to the tax bill getting passed. I think you could argue that one way to think about a tax being too high is when it creates weird economic distortions, decisions that are made specifically to avoid taxes rather than for any underlying economic reason. And these inversions seem like a pretty good candidate for that. I'd argue that ending inversions is a benefit of the bill. I, I understand that. I guess it sounds to me like inversions are about the location of corporate headquarters and where things are are booked on paper. It doesn't sound to me like it affects where activity is actually taking place. So I'm not sure that there's a major economic benefit to, to the removal of inversions. We may find it socially better or something we want to achieve, but I'm not sure it has a major economic impact. I, I would I would argue that I think the distortion would only come about if you think the merger was itself somehow inefficient or a bad idea. So you're, you're picking a firm or an industry that's too far afield from what you know. You're merging with the wrong kind of firm, and it, and it creates disincentives that way. And I would say, based on what, what I've seen, um, it doesn't seem like the mergers in, in tech and pharma have, have been that way. They've seen more, I would say, closer to efficient as opposed to inefficient. So I, again, I'm not sure that there's a major economic benefit here. Okay, let me uh, uh, mention a related distortion to the front end of the corporate bond market, and that's also related to this idea that the U.S. taxed overseas as well as domestic income. Uh, there's a little wrinkle to that where the taxes were only actually owed when the money was brought back to the U.S. So you had this weird phenomenon where very profitable U U.S. companies had cash that was effectively trapped overseas. They were letting it accrue overseas rather than bring it back to the U.S. and and pay that that tax that would have been due to the U.S. government. Um, it was a lot of, of tech, but also healthcare companies, again, like you mentioned, that had this issue. And what we saw was that the companies had limited use for the overseas money. And so what they did instead was they issued in the U.S. short-dated corporate bonds against that cash. They took the proceeds from the corporate bond sales. That was available to them here in the U.S., and they could do whatever they wanted with it. They could buy back stock, pay dividends, make new investments. Um, and, and what you saw was a divergence between gross and net leverage. Gross leverage just measures how much total debt a company has. Total debt was growing very rapidly. 
net leverage offsets the cash that companies have against that total debt. So since they were issuing against all this overseas profitability, net leverage was going nowhere. So you had some very weird distortions to the front end of the corporate bond market. And all of that, again, has ceased since this tax bill get passed. Tech issuance dropped by like 90% last year um, because all of that sort of front end issuance driven by this uh, trapped cash ended once all that cash was deemed repatriated by the bill. I'd still argue that nothing has really changed. You're, you're saying a few large tech companies issued short-dated debt against the cash that they held abroad that they didn't want to repatriate. And then they turn around with that cash and they do something with it. They could invest it in each other's debt or they could they could invest it as if that cash were here in the U.S. So I'm not sure anything really changes on the balance sheet. Has anything really changed? I think that's fair, but at the margin... I think if you were choosing between high gross leverage and no let leverage or low on both counts, you would choose the latter. But I think more importantly, I also expect there to be longer term changes to corporate leverage as a result of this bill. Uh, you know, this goes back to thinking about the relative costs of debt and equity for, for a corporation. And we have to keep in mind that debt had an advantage over equity, which is that the interest on debt was tax, is tax deductible. That means that the relative cost of debt goes down and it encourages companies to, in, to bring on uh, excessive leverage. So our tax code effectively encourages leverage at, at corporates. But the tax shield goes down in value when the corporate tax rate falls. So for example, if the corporate tax was zero, there's no point in issuing debt from a tax standpoint because there's no taxes to deduct your interest against. Um, and, and just in general, lower corporate taxes mean uh, that the relative cost of debt rises compared to equity. And so the response from corporates, both in theory and using the available data that we have from the U.S. and internationally, suggests that leverage should fall. Our estimates suggest that investment-grade industrial leverage could fall by as much as 25% in response to the corporate tax cut. And I think that would pay dividends for the entire economy. Corporate leverage almost surely acts as an accelerant during periods of economic turmoil. When there's an underlying shock to the economy that causes a recession, the fact that corporates carry around a lot of leverage magnifies the effect of that shock on the labor markets, on the stock markets, et cetera. And if we reduce leverage at the corporate level, we will reduce the amplitude of those shocks. You might have lower highs, but you'll have less severe lows as well. And that's probably a trade-off that we should make and that the, current, that the tax cut for corporates will encourage. So on this front, I think we agree. These were not distortions in the code that reduced the incentive to engage in business investment here, but changes in the code will reduce the amount of leverage that firms want to take on. And I do think that's a, a potential benefit in terms of reducing macroeconomic volatility. And I think that also dovetails really well with what we're trying to do on the regulatory front in reducing the amount of risk taken on by the financial sector. But don't you think we could have gone a little further on this, on this front? Is there room to remove the deductibility of interest on debt and push this a little further? I think that's a good point. Obviously, removing interest deductibility entirely uh, would have uh, both simultaneously further reduced the incentive for corporates to get too levered and also actually acted as a revenue offset 
just like limits on state and local tax deductions and mortgage interest acted as an offset against the individual tax cuts. So I think there was a case to make for for sharply reducing the deductibility of corporate interest in terms of revenue as well as in terms of uh, macroeconomic stability. Perhaps that's a reform for future tax code changes. Indeed, and that will be the uh, subject of future episodes, I'm sure, uh, of The Flip Side. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Flip Side. Clients can read more about our views on the impact of the tax cut on corporate investment in our latest report, Sustainable 3% Growth, So You're Saying There's a Chance, available on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Flip Side. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com IB.